So as I promised this morning, we'll take a look at Majjhima Nikaya number 38, which hopefully will answer all of your unanswered questions about consciousness and rebirth and all that good stuff. The Greater Discourse on the Destruction of Craving. Thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was living at Savati in Jeta's Grove, Anatapindika's Park. So this is the same place that the Sutta, the same town that the Sutta took place this morning, Savati, but a different location, Jeta's Grove, Anatapindika's Park. Uh, Anatapindika was a very rich merchant who purchased Jeta's Pleasure Park, uh, to, use, to give to the Buddha as a monastery. He had met the Buddha when he was visiting his brother-in-law in Rajgar and was so impressed that he invited the Buddha to come back to Savati and offered to build a monastery. And so when he got back, he had to find a suitable place and he found Jeta, Prince Jeta's pleasure park, Jeta's Grove, and offered to buy it. And Prince Jeta said, not for sale. Anatapindika said, oh, come on, not for sale. This is for the Buddha, come on. Oh, you really want it that bad? Okay, cover every square inch with a gold coin, and it's yours. Sold. No, 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 I didn't really mean that, but because he'd said it, his friend said, oh, you said you got to sell it. So Anatapindika shows up with literally wagon loads of gold coins and covers the entire ground except for a little spot by the gate. He ran out of gold coins. And Prince Jeta goes, I'll give it to you on a discount. <laughs> so, many suttas take place in Jeta's Grove on the Tapindika's Park uh, because the Buddha spent 25 rains retreats there. So 25 of the 45 years during the rainy season in this place. Now, on that occasion, a pernicious view had arisen in a bhikkhu named Sati, the son of a fisherman. As I understand the Dhamma taught by the Blessed One, it is the same consciousness that runs and wanders through the rounds of rebirth, not another. Okay, so now here's Sati, and he's thinking his consciousness is his self. And when he dies, his consciousness moves on to another incarnation, right? So this is plain old reincarnation as you would find in many traditions. You die, but the essence, the real essence of you, your consciousness, goes and finds a new incarnation. Several bhikkhus, having heard about this, went to the bhikkhu sati and asked him, friend, is it true that such a view has risen in you? Exactly so, friends, as I understand the Dhamma taught by the Blessed One, it is the same consciousness that runs and wanders through the rounds of rebirth, not another. Those bhikkhus, desiring to detach him from that pernicious view, pressed and questioned and cross-questioned him thus, Friend Sati, do not say so. Do not misrepresent the Blessed One. It is not good to misrepresent the Blessed One. The Blessed One would not speak thus. For in many discourses, the Blessed One has stated consciousness to be dependently arisen, since without a condition, there is no origination of consciousness. So, independent origination, we have that consciousness is dependent on mind and body. If we're doing the ten links, mind and body is dependent on consciousness and consciousness is dependent on mind and body. Or if we're doing the 12 links, consciousness is dependent upon sankharas, concoctions, created things, compounded things. Yet although pressed and questioned and cross-questioned by those bhikkhus in this way, the bhikkhu sati, the son of a fisherman, still obstinately adhered to that pernicious view and continued to insist upon it. Since those bhikkhus were unable to detach him from that pernicious view, they went to see the Blessed One 
And after paying homage to him, they sat down at one side and told him all that occurred, adding, Venerable sir, since we could not detach that Bhikkhu Sati, the son of a fisherman, from this pernicious view, we have reported the matter to the Blessed One. Then the Blessed One addressed a certain Bhikkhu thus, Come, Bhikkhu, tell the Bhikkhu Sati, son of a fisherman, in my name that the teacher calls him. Yes, venerable sir, he replied, and he went to the Bhikkhu Sati and told him, The teacher calls you, friend Sati. Yes, friend, he replied, and went to the Blessed One, and after paying homage to him, sat down at one side. The Blessed One then asked him, Sati, is it true that you hold the following view? As I understand the Dhamma taught by the Blessed One, it is the same consciousness that runs and wanders through the rounds of rebirth, not another. Exactly so, Venerable Sir, as I understand the Dhamma taught by the Blessed One. What is consciousness, Sati? Venerable Sir, it is that which speaks and feels and experiences here and there the results of good and bad actions. All right, so consciousness is that little guy sitting behind your eyeballs, looking out, and he's got levers that make your mouth open and close so you can speak, and he's who gets the results of you touching a hot stove, right? And he's the guy that goes on to the next one because he gets the results of karma. Remember? In this morning's discourse, there was some bhikkhu, stubborn and obtuse, who wanted to know who gets the results, what self gets the results of the actions done by the not-self, right? And so Sati thinks consciousness um, experiences here and there the results of good and bad actions. So consciousness wanders through the rounds of rebirth, receiving the results of karma. Misguided man, to whom have you ever known me to teach the Dhamma in that way? Misguided man, in many discourses have I not stated consciousness to be dependently arisen, since without a condition there is no origination of consciousness. But you, misguided man, have represented us by your wrong grasp and injured yourself and stored up much demerit, for this will lead to your harm and suffering for a long time. If you're a disciple of the Buddha, you better keep an open mind. Holding fixed views and opinions is just going to get you in trouble. Then the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus thus, Bhikkhus, what do you think? Has the bhikkhu sati, son of a fisherman, kindled even a spark of wisdom in this dhamma and discipline? How could he, venerable sir? No, venerable sir. When this was said, the bhikkhu sati, son of a fisherman, sat silent, dismayed, with shoulders drooping, head down, glum, and without response. Then knowing this, the blessed one told him, misguided man, you will be recognized by your own pernicious view. I shall question the bhikkhus on this matter. Well, the Buddha was right. We know Sati, the son of a fisherman, 2,500 years later because of his pernicious view. Poor old Sati. Then the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus thus, Bhikkhus, do you understand the Dhamma taught by me as this bhikkhu Sati, son of a fisherman, does? No, venerable sir, for in many discourses the Blessed One has stated consciousness to be dependently arisen, since without a condition there is no origination of consciousness. Good bhikkhus, good. It is good that you understand the Dhamma taught by me, because that's what I've taught. But this bhikkhu sati, son of a fisherman, misrepresents us by his wrong grasp and injures himself and stores up much demerit, Well, this will lead to his harm and suffering for a long time. Bhikkhus, consciousness is reckoned by the particular condition dependent upon which it arises. When consciousness arises dependent on the I in forms, it is reckoned to be I consciousness. When it arises dependent on the ear in sounds, ear consciousness. When dependent on nose and odors, nose consciousness. Dependent on tongue and taste, tongue consciousness. Dependent upon body and tangibles, body consciousness. Dependent upon mind and mind objects, 
mind consciousness. So here's a better answer to the question that I presented this morning. So the consciousness, whether you call it mind consciousness or eye consciousness, is simply dependent upon which of the six senses generates it. So your dreams are mind consciousness, even though you are seeing them, even though there's activity in your visual cortex. Right? So the mind consciousness is what generates the dreams, not the eye, because the eye is not involved. If the eye is involved, then it's eye consciousness. But this is a reckoning It's not a hard, fast, scientific explanation. Just as the fire is reckoned by the particular condition on which it burns, when it burns dependent on logs, it is a log fire. When it burns dependent on faggots, it's a faggot fire. When it burns dependent on grass, it's a grass fire. When it burns dependent on cow dung, it's a cow dung fire. When it burns dependent on chaff, it is a chaff fire. When it burns dependent on rubbish, it is a rubbish fire. So too consciousness is reckoned by the particular condition dependent upon which it arises. So fire is not different whether it's burning on logs or rubbish, right? It's still fire, but we reckon it differently. We may respond to it differently. A log fire, if you need those logs, you'll put it out. A rubbish fire, you may just let it burn. Okay? Consciousness, again, it's a reckoning. But the consciousness is like the fire. In all the cases, there's this commonality. And so we reckon it or give it a name based on the sense that's involved. Then the Buddha asks some general questions. Basically, he's saying, can you see when something has arisen? Yes, Venerable Sir. Can you see its origination occurs with something else as nutriment, as the cause or condition? Yes, Venerable Sir. Do you see with the cessation of that nutriment, what has come to be is subject to cessation? Yes, Venerable Sir. So things arise because of causes. They stick around because of supporting conditions. And when the supporting conditions are gone, then they cease. Now the cause and the supporting conditions could indeed be exactly the same. Or they could be different. And then he asks quite a bit more about this. Checking up if the monks really understand. And they do. Bhikkhus, purified and bright as this view is, if you adhere to it, cherish it, treasure it, and treat it as a possession, would you then understand the Dhamma that has been taught as similar to a raft, being for the purpose of crossing over, not for the purpose of grasping? No, venerable sir. Now, the famous simile of the raft, this occurs in Majjhima Nikaya 22. You're on the dangerous shore and there's a river and if you can get to the other side you're safe but it's too big a river to swim there's no bridge there's no ferryman so you gather materials bind them together and then using your arms and feet make your way across to the far shore the safe shore when you get to the far shore do you pick up the raft and walk around with it on your head No, venerable sir, right? You let it go. The raft is for getting to the other side. But in order to actually safely get to the far shore, at the end, you have to let go of the raft. So if you're taking any teaching and you're getting attached to it, you're making it a fixed view, then it's not a skillful means for getting you to the far shore. And so the Buddha's teaching them about what we call this-that conditionality. This occurs because that occurred. If that doesn't occur, this doesn't occur. And he says, this is important. You've got to understand it, but don't cling to it. That's carrying the raft around on your head. 
Bhikkhus, purified and bright as this view is, if you do not adhere to it, cherish it, treasure it, treat it as a possession, would you then understand the Dhamma that has been taught as similar to a raft, being for the purpose of crossing over and not for the purpose of grasping? Yes, venerable sir. Okay. So now what follows is a discussion of nutriment, the things in general that cause something else to come to be. Bhikkhus, there are four kinds of nutriment for the maintenance of being that have already come into be and for the support of those seeking a new existence. What for? They are physical food as nutriment, gross or subtle, contact as the second, mental volition as the third, and consciousness as the fourth. Now, bhikkhus, these four kinds of nutriment have what is their source, what is their origin, from what are they born and produced? These four kinds of nutriments have craving as their source, their origin. They are born and produced from craving. And this craving has what as its source? Vedna. And Vedna has what as its source? Contact. Contact has what as its source? The senses. The senses, mind and body. Mind and body, consciousness. Consciousness, Sankaras, concoctions, concoctions, ignorance. And now, the Buddha goes through the 12 links of dependent origination in the forward order and arising. So bhikkhus, with ignorance as conditions, concoctions come to be. With concoctions as conditions, you know, all the way up, repeating what we just said, craving, clinging, becoming, birth, Old age, sickness, death, pain, sorrow, grief, lamentation, and all the rest of it. And then the Buddha questions the monks about the reverse order. With birth as condition, aging and death comes to be. So it was said. Now, bhikkhus, do aging and death have birth as a condition or not? How do you take it to be the case? Yes, venerable sir, aging and death have birth as condition. And then it goes through all the others. So given something, what is it dependent upon? And he checks out, and yeah, they got it. All right. And then the Buddha recapitulates, repeats the thing about the arising. And then he goes into the extinction, the cessation. But with the remainderless fading away and cessation of ignorance comes the cessation of the sankharas, the concoctions. With the cessation of the concoctions, the cessation of consciousness, and so forth, all the way up. And then more questionnaire to make sure they got it right, and then recapitulates it. So what the Buddha's doing here, Sati felt that it was his consciousness that roamed and wanders through the rounds of rebirths, getting the results of his actions. And what the Buddha is saying, look at everything in terms of dependently originated phenomena. Don't get stuck in conceiving of some solid entity called me, my soul, my essence, myself. You can't find it. You look for it in any of the aggregates, you're not going to find it there. You look for it in a combination of the aggregates, you can't find it. Now, the Buddha didn't say there was no self. What he said was, everywhere you look, that's not self. Right? In fact, Vachagota, who I mentioned this morning, one time when he came to the Buddha, he said, Venerable Sir, tell me, once and for all, is there a self? Buddha didn't say anything. Okay, venerable sir, once and for all, is there no self? Buddha didn't say anything. Vachakota leaves. After he was gone, the Buddha turns to Ananda and says, if I had said there was a self, he would have fallen into the mistake of eternalism, thinking there was a soul that was going to exist forever. If I had said there was no self, he would have fallen into the mistake of nihilism or annihilationism. He would be utterly destroyed at death. 
better not to say anything so he doesn't get any more confused than he is already. <laughs> Which was good because Sati kept coming back and asking questions and eventually he asked to become a monk and eventually, after asking more questions, he got fully enlightened. So, so the Buddha's not saying that there's no self. What he's saying is everywhere you look, you can't find it. And if you look closely, all that you do find are dependently originated phenomena. Everything is dependent upon something else. There's no essence to anything. I heard a talk by Joseph Goldstein who pointed out that actually it's much more accurate to think of yourself not as a noun but as a verb. You are a collection of processes. You're not just a single process. You're a bunch of processes. You're the circulatory process and the digestive process and the respiratory process. And it's all in motion, it's all moving, and it's all changing all the time. I thought that was really quite, quite interesting and really right on. And I started contemplating it and I realized, you know, there aren't any nouns. It's just some verbs move kind of slow. <laughs> you know, this table is not a noun. This is trees, you know, doing their thing, well, some carpenter's thing as well, right? It's in motion, it's moving, not changing really fast, but everything is changing. You can't find a single thing in the universe that's not changing. Everything arises because of a cause. It sticks around while there's supporting conditions. When the supporting conditions change, it ceases. This is what the Buddha is saying. Look at yourself that way also. You are a dependently originated phenomena. This is what happens. Now, all right, so if actions have results, then if I act, who gets the results? Well, you're asking the who question. The who question is as wrong as which way does the fire go when it goes out. Right? The who doesn't make any sense. An action is performed and the results are embedded in the universe. Duh, right? Okay. And those results come to fruition. They are the cause for further Results. They're the cause for further actions and those results. It's just dependently originated phenomena rolling on. The whole idea of finding a who, a me, an essence, the Buddha says no, it's just dependently originated phenomena. That's all you can find. So, rebirth is the continuation of all the actions that you have performed, but there's no entity involved, no consciousness transmigrating from one body to another. I think I mentioned earlier in this course, it's like there's a great ship of the universe, and we all get to put our hands on the tiller, right? And we all get to push it one way or another. We all get to determine a little bit how it unfolds. This is what our actions are doing. So now you, what you need to do is see that you are a part of the universe and your actions have the chance to make the universe a tiny bit better or a tiny bit worse. I mean, you don't get to do the whole universe and if you do, you've been doing a bad job in this neighborhood lately, right? Global warming and all this stuff, all right? So we get to do a little bit. This is what we need to see. We need to take the bigger picture. But don't make the mistake of identifying with the universe, right? Don't think, okay, it's not me, I'm not my body, 
right? I'm, I'm not my consciousness. I'm the universe. You're not the universe. Come on. <laughs> You're a piece of the universe. But don't identify with anything. It's not that you're identifying with the wrong thing. It's that the act of identification itself is the mistake. Nonetheless, you do have actions. And the actions have results. And all of this actions and results is the dependently originated phenomena of the universe rolling on. Just continually rolling on. Bhikkhus, knowing and seeing in this way, would you run back to the past thus? Were we in the past? Were we not in the past? What were we in the past? How were we in the past? Having been what? What did we become in the past? No, venerable sir. (laughs) Knowing and seeing in this way, would you run forward to the future thus? What shall we be in the future? Shall we not be in the future? What shall we be in the future? How shall we be in the future? Having been what, what shall we become in the future? No, venerable sir. Knowing and seeing in this way, would you now be inwardly perplexed about the present? Am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? Where is this being coming from? Where will it go? No, venerable sir. <laughs> right? So once you can get your head around just dependently originated phenomena rolling on, the who question doesn't really make any sense. Now this is looking at things from the ultimate level, the absolute level. On the relative level, yeah, there are, what, 30 individual people, individual selves sitting in this room. Each of you is sitting on your own seat, wearing your own clothes, digesting your own supper, right? So at the relative level, we can talk about this. But you have to remember, when you talk at the relative level, you don't fully see what's going on. The relative level, actually the words that were originally used were the level of truth that doesn't fully explain what's happening. All right, so yeah, you've got to operate at the relative level. You can't dismiss the relative level. I mean, you wouldn't be able to distinguish between a sandwich and your fingers. You wouldn't be able to cross the street. You've got to have the relative level there, but you've got to realize the limitations of the relative level. Freedom from dukkha is not found at the relative level. Freedom from dukkha is found by taking the higher, the absolute, the ultimate perspective. That's what's necessary. And when you take that perspective, the question of what was I in the past, will I be in the future, who am I now, what am I supposed to be doing, those questions don't arise because you're seeing everything as dependently originated phenomena. We'll talk about this more tomorrow night. Bhikkhus, knowing and seeing in this way, would you speak thus? The teacher is respected by us. We speak as we do out of respect to the teacher. No, venerable sir. Knowing and seeing in this way, would you speak thus? The recluse says this, and so do other recluses. But we, but we do not speak thus. No, venerable sir. Knowing and seeing in this way, would you acknowledge another teacher? No, venerable sir. Knowing and seeing in this way, would you return to the observances, tumultuous debates, and auspicious signs of ordinary recluses and Brahmins, taking them as the core of the holy life? You're going to go back to Brahmanism? No, venerable sir. Do you speak this way of what you have known and seen and understood for yourselves? Yes, venerable sir. This is the key thing. You make progress on the spiritual path based on what you have known and seen and understood for yourself. Not because you can recite what some some teacher said or you belong to a group that believes in a way. No, just because you have known and seen and understood for yourselves. Good bhikkhus, you have been guided by me with this dhamma which is visible here and now 
immediately effective, inviting inspection, leading onward to be experienced by the wise for themselves. For it was with reference to this that it has been said, Bhikkhus, this Dhamma is visible here and now, immediately effective, inviting inspection, onward leading to be experienced by the wise for themselves. All right. This Dhamma about the dependently originated nature of the universe, the universe without solid entities, the universe of just verbs, of just actions and their results. This is the Dhamma. Now the Buddha explains what life is like, how it comes to be. The conception of an embryo in a womb takes place through the union of three things. Here there is the union of mother and father, but is not the mother's season, and the being to be born is not present. In this case, there is no conception of an embryo in the womb. So the being to be born is not present. The Pali word is Gandhava, which is also the same word used for celestial musicians. And when the Westerners first encountered this stuff and translated it, they got the idea that the Buddhists thought that you have to have sex while there's celestial musicians playing in order for pregnancy to occur. All right? But that's not what the translation means. It means the being to be born. But you're not to conceive of the being to be born as some disembodied spirit, my consciousness from my previous life hovering around, oh, they look good, I'll go there. No, it's just the potentiality of an, a fertilized embryo happening. The third, second case, there is the union of mother and father, and it's the mother's season, but the being to be born is not present. In the, this case, too, there is no conception of an embryo in the womb. Just didn't happen, even though the timing was good. But when there is the union of mother and father, and it is the mother's season, then the, and the being to be born is present, and the potential is actualized. Through this union of these the three things, the conception of an embryo in the womb takes place. The mother then carries the embryo in her womb for nine or ten months with much anxiety as a heavy burden. Then at the end of nine or ten months, the mother gives birth with much anxiety as a heavy burden. Then when the child is born, she nourishes it with her milk. When the child grows up and his faculties mature, the child plays at such games as toy plows, tip cat, somersaults, toy windmills, toy measures, toy cars, and a toy bow and arrow. When he grows up further and his faculties mature, the youth enjoys himself provided and endowed with the five chords of sensual pleasure, with forms cognizable by the eye, sounds cognizable by the ear, smells cognizable by the nose, flavors cognizable by the tongue, tangibles cognizable by the body, that are wished for, desired, agreeable, and likable, connected with sensual desire, and provocative of lust. In other words, the child grows up and begins to explore the environment and is able to determine what brings pleasure what's going to produce the pleasant Vedana. On seeing a form with an eye, he lusts after it if it is pleasing, and he dislikes it if it is unpleasing. He abides with mindfulness of the body, unestablished it, with a limited mind, and he does not understand as it actually is the deliverance of mind and deliverance by wisdom, wherein those evil unwholesome states cease without remainder. Engaged as he is in favoring and opposing whatever feeling he feels, whether pleasant or painful or neither painful or pleasant, he delights in that feeling, welcomes it, and remains holding to it. As he does so, delight arises in him. Now delight in feelings is clinging. And with this clinging as condition comes to be being. With being is conditioned birth, with birth is conditioned aging, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair come to be. Such is the origin of this whole mass of suffering. 
So the child is interacting with the environment, and when the environment produces pleasant Vedana, he wants it. If it produces unpleasant Vedana, he wants to get rid of it. And this is the craving and then the clinging, and this leads to the dukkha. Here, a Tathagata appears in the world, accomplished, fully enlightened, and teaches a Dhamma which is good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end. And the graduated training is now repeated here. The, the precepts, the morality, the guarding of the senses, the mindfulness of bodily activities, the being content with little, the abandoning of the hindrances, the jhanas, uh, and then uh, on seeing a form with, and then after having done this, and it's interesting, it doesn't actually bring in the insight part, but having experienced the jhanas, then on seeing a form with the eye, one does not lust after it and so forth. We have to assume that there has to be some insight in here, that you've gotten to the point where you can see something that's pleasurable and the craving doesn't arise. And then it negates all this. One does not get caught up in this. Um, as he does not do so, delight in feelings ceases. With the cessation of delight comes the cessation of clinging. With the cessation of clinging, the cessation of becoming. With the cessation of becoming, cessation of birth. With the cessation of birth, the cessation of old age, sickness, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. Such is the cessation of this whole mass of suffering. And the same is repeated for all of the senses. Bhikkhus, remember this deliverance through the destruction of craving as taught by, in brief by me. But this Bhikkhu Sati, son of a fisherman, is caught up in a vast net of craving, in the trammel of craving. This is what the Blessed One said. The Bhikkhus were satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. So the poor Bhikkhu Sati was craving for eternal pleasant existence. He was craving for his consciousness to keep going. And what the Buddha is saying is you've got to let go of your fixed views and actually look at the world in terms of dependently originated phenomena because that's all that's there. That's the absolute perspective that you need to take if you're going to escape from the dukkha. I said I might talk about the sutta of transcendental dependent origination, but I think I'm going to skip that because that's probably enough for tonight. So, questions, comments? What you said about um, there being no nouns, there being verbs. Mm-hmm. Um, just, I was just realizing what noun Oh, yeah. But, but even in ways that are patently ridiculous. I mean, I, I was just realizing that I have a tendency to see people when I just meet them as the age that they are when I meet them, as, as they always, as if they will be now. Right. And exactly. My grandmother was always old. Yeah. It, obviously, I know that's not true, but that's the immediate perception. Right. Exactly. There's the famous saying, you can't step in the same river twice. I mean, a river is not a thing. It's a process. It's always moving. And if you can step out of that thingifying, it can be helpful for seeing what's going on. Interestingly enough, the Navajo language doesn't have any nouns. It's all verbs. This is tabling. Right, I think maybe growing up as that with that as your mother tongue, you would have a very different view of the world, perhaps a lot more closely aligned with what the Buddha is pointing out. All that I do, good or evil, that I will inherit. 
Right. Is that uh, a joint inheritance? <laughs> <laughs> I would say it's a statement from the relative perspective rather than the absolute perspective. In fact, I would say all of those, all five of them, are from the relative perspective rather than the absolute perspective. When you start getting to the absolute perspective, then, yeah, it becomes a joint inheritance. Whatever I do is affecting the unfolding of the universe. And in fact, if you really want to get down to it, it's not that there's a bunch of verbs out there. It's there's really only one verb, unfolding. The universe is unfolding. But even saying the universe, that's nanifying it, right? So there's just unfolding. And so taking the relative view of I do something, basically the universe is unfolding in a way based on my intentions and how I bring those intentions into fruition. So, but yeah, the five daily reflections, just like metta, are seen from the relative perspective rather than the absolute perspective. Mixing up relative and absolute is a very common thing to do and leads to all sorts of weird seeming contradictions. It's very important to know which perspective you're looking from when you're doing practice or anything else. Mm-hmm. So it was uh, somebody doing something years before. And he also said, nothing whatsoever should be conceived of as I or mine. So how could they be his unless he's conceiving them of my previous lives? Now, And there's the supernormal power of remembering past lives, okay? But what it says, in fact, I won't even quote it. I'll read it to you precisely. Okay. Let's see how quickly I can get there. Number 26 and 36, which tell about the enlightenment. And I can't ever remember which part of it is in which sutta. When my concentrated mind was thus purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfections, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability. All right, so he did the jhanas at the beginning of the night of enlightenment. I directed it to knowledge of recollection of past lives. It doesn't say his past lives. Then it says, I recollected my manifold past lives, that is, one birth, two births, etc. But it says, recollection of past lives. I don't doubt that he was able to tap into some sort of ESP phenomena of experiencing past lives, but the original says recollection of past lives, not recollection of my past lives. I've often wondered if it was really phrased, I recollected manifold past lives, and then somebody stuck the my in there later, and you know, giving the ownership to the Buddha. Because it makes no sense for them to be the Buddha's past lives if nothing whatsoever should be conceived of as owned by someone. So, 
All right, that's how I'm going to answer your question. Now, as for the Jataka tales, which are the stories of the Buddha's past lives and are part of the Pali Canon, what I'm basically going to say is that these were probably Indian folk tales that predated the Buddha that were co-opted to be his past lives. In other words, the stories were around and they just took them and said, oh, yeah, that was the Buddha. He was the hero of this one too, making it his past lives. But I'm sure you can find other teachers who won't take that viewpoint. So feel free to take the viewpoint that you feel is most appropriate for you. Yeah, it would be a, a relative. I mean, if you remember something, you're remembering your memory, so you obviously assume it's yours. Furthermore, this happened before he was enlightened. He only got enlightened about, what, eight hours later. So he must have misunderstood it if, if he was saying my then. <laughs> right? So... Oh, when, yeah. When you finally get to the point where you can have pleasure without craving, causing the suffering, and mm-hmm. you experience pain without adding even further suffering, you thought, what? It's your last, last ride. End of the game. I mean, it's no fun, is it? I mean, what, you're actually ready to have a good time. Let's finish. Well, apparently, there's, there's. <laughs> Well, apparently there's more to it than that because it leaves you in a state where you are experiencing bliss all the time. Well, you're going to die anyhow. <laughs> right. Well, remember, the whole thing of saying, I come back, isn't... I mean, you're falling into Sati's trap thinking that there's an essence of me that's going to be coming back. The Buddha is saying what's really going on is just dependently originated phenomena. You better get in tune with the dependently originated phenomena if you want to experience less dukkha. So, yeah, this whole thing about past lives, reincarnation... You know, who comes back, what comes back. It's it's a hairy thing. I'm just trying to report to you what the Buddha says. Tell you the truth, I don't know what happens after we die. You know, I ain't dead yet. I don't remember being dead, so I don't know. But I'm looking to this guy because it makes sense. So I'm trying to step out of looking at dependently, looking at Entities and looking at dependently originated phenomena. Please. There is consciousness arising and disappearing from moment to moment. Correct. They are not really connected. When when it appears, then it means something to condition the next consciousness to appear. Correct. Yeah, there's the momentum of the moment that's gone before. So a moment of consciousness arises, but it has momentum that is left there that colors how the next moment of consciousness arises. All right? Mm-hmm. Unknown to worry at the moment. So when it appears, it seems that you know everything that happened before it appears and all the others that appear. 
Yeah, it seems to turn into a stream of consciousness, but it, as you say, it's actual moments. And the, the past, that's just a memory. You know, and the future, that's just a hope. I mean, you, you can't find the past, right? So, but it left its, the, the actions from the past left a mark on what we're experiencing now. The momentum of what was going on in the past has carried forward into the present. So this moment of consciousness is colored by what happened in the past. Does that, does that fit? Yeah, and I would say it's even more than memories. It's it's really momentum of the momentum of the neurons firing even. Yeah. Memories are part of it. It arises in the same being. Right. It arises in the in in the same psychophysical process. Right. And, and the being is this body and the consciousness that depends upon it. Right. They're looking for the, an incarnation of the previous Dalai Lama, yes. Yeah. It would seem that way, but I don't know what they're teaching at the deepest level. Okay? Uh, as I said, I'm trying to share with you what the Buddha had to say. So, uh, you, can, you can find lots of stuff out there. And I could, I could make up stuff about how you know, it's not really reincarnation, it's, but I'm not going to go there. <laughs> Mahayana Buddhism has indeed added some stuff. There's no doubt about it. Some of which is very helpful and very useful, and some of it is like, well, I'd rather go see what the Buddha had to say. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think I can speculate enough about what it would be like if he came into a Judeo-Christian tradition. But certainly, he came into a, a tradition that was well established, and he didn't really try and completely change the dominant worldview. He only took the parts that he thought were really problematic, and he changed those. So he left intact the whole cosmology with all the hells and all the various levels of heaven. He left all the gods there. He just said, they're not immortal, they're impermanent too. And tweaked the various bits of the teaching so that it moved in a slightly different direction. Although when you get all of those slightly different directions moving, it winds up being something very different. In particular, he's addressing this whole idea of an Atman, uh, a self with a capital S that you need to have union of. And, but he left a lot of the structure there because it was a lot easier to tweak what was in that 
current worldview, including the ideas of rebirth and reincarnation, rather than trying to introduce something very new. So I think you're exactly right. It's historical. And he would use some of the existing words from the Brahminical religion, but give them a slightly different twist. So he took rebirth and he he gave it another twist, the rebirth of the consciousness moment to moment, rather than the rebirth of the consciousness, this identifiable consciousness in another entity. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of historical stuff there. Right, it's, it's the relationship you have with those notions, your ability to let go of the fixed views and opinions and to actually see things from a different perspective. In other words, to see things from the absolute perspective. So I think that's what he's trying to do. He's very skillfully using the ideas of his culture and just twisting them slightly to give you another viewpoint one that is deeper and enables you to escape from the dukkha. Would it be fair to say that there's a level at which you, you just can't get this stuff just by sort of thinking about it? And, yes. Yeah. That would be not only fair to say that, it would be necessary to say that. It's all about the understood experience. And so what I put up here, I don't expect you to believe I mean, why would you believe a hippie computer programmer from Mississippi, right? You better check all this stuff out for yourself, right? But hopefully this will give you some guidelines of some directions to look in when you're checking it out. I think about the Mahayana, the Tibetans. That's there, but it sometimes seems as though they're looking for the actual person coming back. Um, Again, you have to remember, particularly in Tibetan Buddhism, they tend to teach on three levels. The literal level, so yeah, it's the same guy coming back again and again. And then the more esoteric level, and then finally the secret level. So it could be that what we're getting is sort of the the basic level. Oh, yeah, he's coming back. But as you say, at a, at a deeper level, they're looking for the qualities. And at the secret level, well, you know, they didn't let me in on all the secrets there. But certainly there seems to be, well, as I said earlier, there seems to be actually... ESP, extrasensory perception, does seem to be a phenomenon. I've just had too many experiences that I can't dismiss it. Um, So it could be that what they're looking for is some kid who's exhibiting enough ESP to be able to pick out the possessions of the previous Dalai Lama, right? Not because... He is the previous Dalai Lama, but he's able to read the minds of the people who know which is the right answers. Okay? And if he's got that sort of talent, and he seems like he's got the compassion as well, then, hey, this is a good choice for the next time. But I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm struggling down here at the Theravadan level trying to understand what the Buddha said. I, I don't think I can run off to all the Tibetan level. You know, I just do one of their practices and love it. But, yeah, they got more cosmology than I can chew. <laughs> and, uh, so to, to come earlier to the question, is conscious do reincarnate to the next plane? Or maybe it would be more right to say consciousness, like 
different level of consciousness reincarnate? I would say that I would say consciousness is what's behind the actions. In other words, your conscious intentions and the actions that you do have results that appear in the universe. So anytime you do something, you are incarnating into the universe at that point. So don't think of me as an entity. Think of the actions that are being done. One of the teachings on karma that I found very helpful is to see that there are no actors but there are actions and their results. Right? And so if you're trying to drop back into the consciousness and identify it, you're dropping back into the actor, the who, which at the relative level works okay. But when you start getting into the ultimate level, it's just actions and their results. That's what's there. Can you see the universe as actions being done and the results from those without a who, then you can take the ultimate perspective. There is a sutta coming to my mind. The handful of leaves. Right. And uh, it's not uh, the answer to all these questions, in a way. Right. The Buddha is walking with his monks in the forest, and he picks up a handful of leaves, and he says, Monks! Which is more, the leaves in my hand or the leaves in the forest? Uh, there are far more leaves in the forest than in your hand, venerable sir. Just so, I have taught you what you need to know to overcome dukkha. That's the handful of leaves. What I know is the leaves in the forest. So, let's see. Well, all right, the Theravada tradition and the suttas have a lot in common. <laughs> but I wouldn't say that Theravadan Buddhism... Mm, no, the, the Theravadan approach is more like what you find with Sati, the son of a fisherman, with consciousness going from incarnation to incarnation. That's more what you'll find in the Theravadan approach at least at the popular level. But I'm not interested in Theravadan Buddhism. I'm interested in what the Buddha had to say. And the Buddha said, nope, it's not consciousness going from incarnation to incarnation. It's dependently originated phenomena rolling on. And is there any tradition that do not believe in incarnation? Is there Sutta Buddhism, in other words? Well, I'm trying to practice it. Uh, John Peacock, Stephen Batchelor, Musang. You know, I run into a few people trying to practice. Santikaro. Yeah, but there's no big tradition. I mean, think about it. Most Buddhism is, well, it's the thing out there to help you deal with the dukkha that happens in your life. Right? It's to give you some nice answers when someone you love dies. Okay, they're all right. They're, they'll be showing up in another body. Just like Christianity. Someone you love dies, it's okay, they're with Jesus. Right? So there's a lot of comfort Buddhism. This is 99.99% of the Buddhists in the world. This is 99.99% of the religious people in the world. They're taking these comforting thoughts and that's as far as they want it to go. Right? It provides them a sense of security and comfort. But does it actually transform them? Does it take them beyond their daily concerns? I don't think most people practice at that level. What we're attempting to do in the West with a bunch of lay people practicing is actually a fairly unique thing. Not, not many religions have a lot of people practicing and most people who are practicing are full-time religious practitioners. You know, we're trying to do it on the side. It's quite interesting. It'll be very interesting to see how it evolves. Of course, we won't be around to see. <laughs> um, coming back to the 
coming back to uh, actions that uh, no actor is just actions and their results. How do we understand then karma's intention? Because intention seems to bring into play the actor and what the actor wanted at the time the action was done. Well, intending, if we get rid of nouns, intending is an action, a mental action. Right? So if you're going to take it to the level of no actors, just actions and their results, you've got to take it to the level of no nouns, just verbs. <laughs> the actions <laughs> right very good okay it's late enough I think it must be time for a short break and then meta and remember I don't know what's going on I'm just trying to share what I've come to understand with you you've got to figure this stuff out for yourself Yeah.